Welcome to Rusty Radio. Uh, today we have one of the founders of the Rust language with us. Uh, Nico, should I call you Nico? Yeah, that's better. Great. Um, to talk about uh, the history of Rust, some of the st new stuff in Rust, and, and hopefully some high-level topics to push the Rust language forward. So welcome. Thank you. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, what you were doing before Rust, how you got involved in Rust, um, your, your kind of passions which led you there. Sure. So I, before Rust, I, I was a grad student. Um, before that, I worked on a, a JIT compiler and did a few other things. So I have a background in compilers, basically. And uh, when I went to do my research, actually, I started out thinking I was going to build a better JIT, maybe a JIT for Python or some dynamic languages, and quickly discovered that, in fact, I didn't know half as much as I thought I did. And there have been a lot of really interesting and fascinating research on this topic and, uh, and went looking around. And around that time, I got really involved, really interested in how, how you can make parallel programming kind of safer and, and more effective and more declarative and so on. And that led to my thesis, which was kind of a system for parallel programming a type system basically layered on top of Java. And I was happy. I was enjoying that. But when I was looking for what to do afterwards, I really wanted uh, something that could kind of take some of those ideas, but maybe bring them with a lot more um, external impact on the world at large, You know, something that people would use outside of academia. And it, it, I wanted to build an end, a finished product and things like that. So that's kind of what led me to Mozilla Research, because it seemed to combine the two kind of novel research ideas, but with a real, a real uh, focus on production. Yeah, I I know a lot of people who uh, one of the reasons why they feel comfortable using Rust is the Mozilla backing. Uh, were you the one who maybe helped convince them to to take this effort on? Actually, no, yeah, not at all. So it it was already underway, and when I came in, Rust Rust was actually bootstrapping already. Uh, so I never experienced, for example, the OCaml days when, when the compiler was written in OCaml and, and, and so forth. And it had some of its character, but it was really quite a different language then. So it didn't have any safety system, for example. So the whole, basically, uh, we had similar, we had some, some ideas about ownership and borrowing, but they weren't nearly as refined. And there was not, and the borrow checker and so forth wasn't in place, so you could easily seg fault if you weren't careful. Um, so it was kind of like a, a, a much closer to C++ in some sense in that way. Um, like there was conventions that you ought to follow, but nothing that helped you to do it. Uh, but the the project certainly certainly existed. Um, that makes sense. Uh, it's really cool. Um, so I want to. We might get back to some of the the background stuff. Um, but I want to immediately jump into an article that you wrote recently talking about Mir um, and getting the, the backstory on it. And I noticed that the Rust playpen actually even can demonstrate or can even show you the, the Mir and the LLVM IR. I wonder if you might um, say what all of that stuff means and also um, how this might be used by the programmer, and finally, what advantages this new intermediate format will provide to Rust programmers. Right. So, so to step back a second, Mirror is kind of it's an internal, as you said, an internal format, an internal representation 
uh, intermediate representation actually uh, in the compiler. So in some sense, it, it, it sort of doesn't matter directly to end Rust users, right? It's just the way that the compiler represents your program. And, but I think it could have a pretty dramatic impact in terms of it being an important refactoring that allows the compiler to do a lot of things uh, much more easily. Right. And so the big, the big idea, essentially, in the, in the current compiler architecture, we have something called an abstract syntax tree. And we also have something called a here, high-level IR. They're, they're kind of the same thing. And basically, that's a representation that's very, very close to, to the syntax that you actually type in. Right? There's only some small differences. But it has the same structure. It's kind of a tree. Um, you know, so if you might have like a for loop, then it would say it would have like a for loop node. And it would have children nodes for the that represent in this tree children nodes that represent the body of the for loop and so on. And we do, that's a standard starting IR in a compiler and we do our type checking on that. But the problem is that a lot of the Rust type system, especially the borrow checker, as it gets more sophisticated, uh, it really wants to work at a lower level. It really wants to have, think about control flow more directly, for example. So in terms of the tree, control flow is kind of uh, obliquely described. So you might have a break that jumps you out of the loop, but you have to kind of figure out where does it break to, what's the innermost enclosing loop, and all that kind of thing. Um, and it's also just a lot of, there's a lot of uh, different variations in Rust, you know, of different uh, constructs, like different kinds of loops that can be translated into one another, right? So, so Mir is basically all about simplifying all these different representations and making basically retaining all the details we need to do the safety checking and so forth and to translate to, to IR, but, but hiding as many of the details that we don't need so that it simplifies the job of the later passes. Um, in terms of what that should enable, I think the most probable, there are kind of two answers, I guess. One is that a lot of this code that exists today in the compiler is just you know, getting long in the tooth and a little bit crufty. So it's layers and layers of kind of annotations and extra schemes that have been added over the years. Uh, with Rust in particular, like up until 1.0, we were iterating really, really fast, actually, on adjusting the language. And we didn't spend a lot of time cleaning up the compiler code base. So sometimes it, get, it has kind of a historical aspect to it. I think all code bases get like that. And so Mir is going to simplify things by just taking, well, what is, now that we know what, what Rust the language is and what we need to do to compile it, can we kind of simplify and cut to the chase and do just that, right? And so that's helpful for incremental compilation and some other things because Mirror was designed with the goal of being serialized to disk and reloaded and so forth, uh, which the current IR is really not intended for. But then the other thing is that because it simplifies all those details and because it kind of pulls out the most important parts of the Rust program, it lets us do more advanced analyses, right? And one of the big ones is something we have been calling non-lexical lifetimes, but I, that's kind of an internal jargon. I think the best way to describe it is just a more precise borrow checker. So the borrow checker is the kind of basic safety guarantee system that underlies Rust, right? This is the thing that tells you if you're borrowing, if you have a reference into some vector, for example, then you can't push on the vector while that reference is in use. Right, it enforces those rules, but currently, because it operates over the over this abstract syntax tree, which 
doesn't encode the control flow very directly, and so forth. It currently makes some coarse-grained approximations. And that results in programs not compiling that you know, intuitively one would expect to compile. Uh, and sometimes results in some the need to kind of insert artificial blocks and make some kind of gyrations that you shouldn't have to make. And so we've been we've seen this as something we'd like to improve for a long time, but it's just very hard with the current IR. It's not uh, it's hard to do it at all, and it's particularly hard to do it well and reliably um, with, without a lot of bugs creeping in. Right. So the newer IR makes that a lot more direct. Very cool. Um... And we invite all of our listeners to check out the Rust Playground to check out the uh, the uh, MIR format. Um, I actually found it quite readable, but then I, again, I also like reading the LLVMIR. Um, so, anyway, um, let's jump into uh, some more abstract questions. Um, something that I struggle with is a concise and clear definition of what lifetimes even mean to other people. Um, I'm sure you've thought about lifetimes, the borrow checker, and these new non-lexical lifetimes. Can you help our audience come up with an elevator pitch to people who might be more familiar with, like, let's say, go and see, um, and how we might help spread the gospel about this new technique? So there's a couple uh, questions packed into that one, I think. Right. One is, how can you sell Rust? Another is, how can you get an intuitive feeling for, for the rules that Rust enforces? And the final is kind of, just what does the word lifetime precisely refer to? Uh, and I think they're sort of, I ordered them in that order because I think that's kind of, as you get deeper and deeper into Rust, the answer becomes more and more important. Um, so. I don't know, what, did you have one of those you prefer me to start with? No, that actually, I, I think that might actually be the right order, even though it's, it's not intuitive. That, that sounds great. Okay, so the first one is sort of, how do you sell, what does Rust offer? Uh, and I think that's a really interesting question. That's something I've been thinking a lot about, because over the course of developing Rust, I think we found that the audience is, is different and much larger than we originally thought. Right? We originally thought of it as, sort of a, a C++ with safety guarantees. And the problem is safety guarantees aren't kind of, everybody wants their code to be safe, but it's usually not the top priority. The top priority is getting the project done, right, and out the door and something. Safety, you want it as safe as it needs to be to, to be successful. Um, but what I think people don't realize is that safety brings, it's, it sort of sounds like dot your eyes or something kind of mandatory, but it actually frees you and brings a whole new level of uh, expressiveness to the table, right? So for example, I think parallelism is, is the easiest example to see basically. So if, if you're an experienced C++ programmer and you make some mistakes and you get a seg fault, you're probably pretty good at tracking down what caused that seg fault to happen, right? And you can probably fix it fairly fast. And similarly, if you're an experienced Python or Ruby programmer, the fact that when you have like a, a variable whose name you, know, you didn't declare or you, you have a typo in your variable name, it doesn't take you long to find those kind of bugs. You run your unit tests and you find them. But in either case, that's time that 
kind of could be better spent, right? It would be better if you didn't have to spend it. And even if it doesn't take you a long, a long time, it kind of adds up. And so what, what Rust allows is both all those kind of bugs, you kind of deal with them right as you're getting started, right? And once the code is working, you don't have to worry about them. And similarly with parallelism, I think, at least when I try to add, if I take a sequential C++ program and I try to add parallelism to it, right, my ambitions start out pretty small because it's, you, if it wasn't designed with that in mind, it's, it can be very challenging to figure out where the aliases are, where are the references, what can safely be divided up. And it takes a whole lot of energy even to get started, right? Even to get it not crashing and not just doing crazy things. And then to really gain confidence takes even more. So you end up doing it at these very coarse grain boundaries to start with, because that's kind of the only place where you have a clear picture of, of, of how the system works. Um, Whereas with Rust, you can certainly do it at those clear boundaries, and that's very easy. But it's also much easier to get way down into the nitty-gritty. I mean, you can say, well, this loop you know, ought to be parallelizable, and you can try it. And if it's not true, the compiler is going to tell you. And you, once you've got it running, you, know, you pretty much know that it's, it's, it's either going to work, or you'll have a few bugs to sort out. But you know, it's basically in shape. You won't have these kind of subtle bugs that crop up way down the line. Um, and I think that's a pretty awesome thing. I think of it kind of like, kind of like poetry or something. So I think there's a common theme where when you're writing, I mean, I'm not really a poet, but I, I talk to poets and they tell me this, that when you're working on poetry, there's, there's a certain value in, in working in, in a kind of more restrictive form. So if you take like a fixed meter where you have a certain pattern of emphasis, in some sense that's limiting, but in another sense it's very freeing because you, you work within that structure, it constrains your choices and it lets you express yourself in different ways. Um, and I feel like that about Rust. Like the type system does uh, have a way that it wants you to organize your code, but organizing your code that way has a lot of benefits. It, it really clears up the dependencies and it really allows you to then do further things like parallelize loops or just you know, get it working in the first place. I find that really powerful. So. Great. Um, That's question number one. <laughs> yeah. How do I best understand, how do I get an intuitive feeling for the Rust uh, type system? And I, this is one that I've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about. And I think the most, I think the most intuitive way is to go through metaphor. <laughs> uh, I, I think the Rust type system actually maps pretty closely to things that you experience in real life because these same kind of conflicts arise in real life. I mean, the basic rule is uh, if you're going to mutate something, then you, the best way, the easiest way is to have unique access to it. And if you're going to read from it, you can share it. Right? So, so if you're going to have the same data accessed by many different references, it needs to be either, it needs to be immutable for the most part. Right. Um, and then, the way that that gets, winds up getting enforced is essentially when you make a reference into some data, the compiler puts a kind of compile time lock on the thing that you borrowed, right? And if you try to use that thing during the scope of that borrow, so while that borrow is still active, you'll get an error. So that's sort of an easy example as if I am iterating through a vector, then I have references into the data that resides in the vector. And when I try to mutate that, or and for the duration of that loop, those references are live. I can't 
mutate the vector. Right? They can't push onto it or something like that. But once the loop expires, the lock is kind of released. It's conceptual lock, and I can go and mutate it again. Um, right, and, and this is like the thing that I crash my C++ compiler all the time when I have references into the vector, and then it gets resized and lost. And Right. Yeah, I have, a, I have a sort of story about this. Like, I think this kind of bug is, it sounds like something that would never happen, right? You think, or, or that happens is very easily solved when it does happen. Uh, if you think, oh, how often do I push on a vector while I'm iterating through it? And maybe you don't do that exact thing very often. But this, this sort of general pattern, I think, happens quite a lot. And sometimes it's really difficult to solve. So there's a, a story from, that I like to tell from when Rust was, the Rust compiler was being developed. And in, the, in those days, the notation was a little different. But effectively, what we had was a shared hash map. And it hashed some data about the crates that you're using. I don't remember exactly what it was. And there was a period very late in the compiler where we would iterate over this hash map and look at the things that were in it, right, one by one. And then meanwhile, earlier in the compiler, this hash map was lazily populated. So when we first needed to find some information, we'd go load it from the disk and cache it in the map. And we thought, I guess, I don't know if anyone actually did think, but sort of thought, that that was all done by the time you got to this very late phase on the compiler. So it was OK to just iterate over it and have references into it, uh, because there's nothing new was being added to it. But there were also these kind of mysterious crashes at that time. That there were I mean, four or five issues where people, the compiler would just crash. And no one could really figure out why. It seemed to happen sort of at random, you know, not, not very deterministic. And as part of, I was basically was just fixing other unrelated bugs in the compiler. And I realized that this, the system that was trying to prevent you from having uh, mutable access and read-only access at the same time was, was broken. And it was allowing them to both occur simultaneously. So this was the equivalent of today's ref cell. It was kind of a dynamically enforced version of the protocol I just talked about. And that dynamic enforcement was broken. And when I fixed it, all of a sudden, we had all these errors cropping up in the compiler where it was saying, you have a mutable borrow here, or sorry, a read-only borrow here, and you're trying to make mutations down here. And essentially, what was happening was that this loop that was walking over the, over the hash map was then indirectly calling one function, which called another, which called another, which after like five or 10 links wound up populating the hash map. And that sometimes would resize the hash map. And so sometimes it would free the pointer that, that the original iteration was using. And these two bits of code were completely different. right? One was in the back end of the compiler, and one was way up in the parser. And there was no reason for me to think that, that one could even invoke the other. Uh, and that's the kind of bug that I think anyone who's done a lot of C++ programming will recognize it right away. It happens. right? It's these, these unintentional links crop up. And so being either freed from that completely, or as was the case here, because it was dynamically checked. The bugs still happened, but once it happened, it was trivial to diagnose and to fix. It was sort of obvious what went wrong. I think it would have taken me weeks and weeks to find that bug. Maybe not weeks and weeks, but it would have taken quite some time to find it uh, ordinarily. And to have it just immediately pointed out to me was, was so nice. You know, um, It also served as good evidence that these bugs do happen, <laughs> even in Rust, even when you're using fancier type systems or whatever. That makes a lot of sense. Actually, a friend of mine in, my, in the REST community who will remain anonymous uh, went around to university professors showing them um, C++ code where they were, you know, actually, I think it was actually just a traditional iterate and pop and uh, push into a vector at the same time. 
And in general, he said, even with, you know, university professors who taught C++ classes, it would take five to 10 minutes on a very simple slide for people to even notice it. So it's nice, in my opinion, to have a compiler enforcing something where my brain might not normally think that way. I think our brain has no problem with data races, but so I'm glad the Rust compiler will have none of it. Um, but speaking of that, I, I'm curious, we, we talked about a precise definition of a lifetime. I usually try to explain it for C++ programmers in terms of like, well, here's how your destructor works, here's how you can control it. But I'm curious if you could up-level it and help me provide a more abstract way. Yeah. Of so I think there's actually two concepts here. And I'll be perfectly honest and say I'm still not sure that we have the right names for them. <laughs> but I've been using these names for, for the time being. Uh, and one of them is what I, I've been calling the scope of a value. And that corresponds to two things, which in, in Rust and in C++ are tied together, right? The scope is both, we often think of it as where can I name this from? Right? So if I have like a variable x, then it's in scope from the point of its declaration within a block until the end of the block for the most part, right? Um, but it's also the where will the destructor run in a sense, right? Where's the value live until its destructor runs. So it starts and that's where it's initialized in, in the let statement, and then its destructor will run as you exit the block, right? Um, in Rust, it's a little, well, I would say, assuming you haven't moved it and so on uh, in Rust. And the lifetime of a, the way I've been using it, at least, I try to use it as a distinct notion from when the destructor runs. It's actually how the span of code where a reference is in use. So if I, using the ampersand operator, you know, take the address of a, of a variable, then I use that reference, let's say, within a loop or something. The lifetime of the reference would be the loop. But the variable itself might belong to some outer block and have a scope which is bigger than the reference. Right? And in general, the lifetime of any reference has to be smaller than the scope, because otherwise you'd have a reference into memory that had been, whose destructor had executed, and that would be bad. Um, so I think this term lifetime can be confusing because it can, it can be used in many ways sort of in, in normal speak. You might say the lifetime of this value and then that's implied when the destructor will run. So a lot of times I like to try to shift from, from the lifetime of the reference to say something like the duration of the borrow. So those are really equivalent concepts uh, in, in the Rust compiler at least. So the duration of a borrow being how long the borrow is, is, is live or in use. Uh, or active kind of is also the lifetime of the reference. Ah, that's that's actually quite cool. Um, so um, one, one last thing I'll note while I'm on this topic is that that is expressed always as some part of your code. So like right now it's always a lexical notions, but that, by that I mean like some expression or a particular statement or a suffix of a block. It's kind of a it's grown a little bit the hierarchy, but it's it's always some something you could select kind of by dragging your cursor through the text, uh, you know, in, in a text editor. Uh, though not, well, not everything you can select. But <laughs> and that's what the whole non-lexical lifetime is, is to kind of generalize it to be arbitrary flow graphs. But it would still correspond to kind of some subpart of your function, like a portion of a block or, the, you know, the, the, the st from the start of the if until halfway through the then or the else. Um, Abstractly, we should be focusing on accomplishing as we develop the macro system in Rust. 
Yeah, that's a very big question. So, so first, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I haven't been driving this effort. That's been Nicholas Cameron, or NRC. Uh, however, I'm certainly, you know, more or less up to date on it. Um, I think there's a lot of goals that we have, and one of the challenges here has been selecting what is sort of the primary goals and which ones are secondary, and how can we make sure that how can we establish a kind of minimal viable product or whatever, MVP, whatever that actually stands for, uh, such that we, um, we, you know, we can get that working the fastest, but not block ourselves from doing things down the line that we would like to do, extensions and so on. Right. So, so a little like historically, the macro system that we put into Rust today, the macro rules, is sort of very heavily based on scheme. Uh, and hasn't ever been, we've had various people paying lots of attention to it and it's, it works pretty well, but we've, it's, it's always had kind of rough edges that we've always wanted to fix, but when it came to the 1.0 release, we felt like we didn't have time and it was pretty useful and, and definitely good enough to, to ship as it was and we hoped we could kind of correct it down the line. And so that's one of the things we're talking about here. And I can talk a little bit about some of those shortcomings, but I think that that's not, to my mind, in terms of the most important thing we'd like to enable, that's not number one. Number one for me is programmable plugins. Uh, and in particular, things like custom deriving. We would like serialization like with Serde or, or some of these fancier use cases like Gleam or, or Diesel, where they have plugins that are kind of generating glue code for you. Um, that seems like a really useful capability and something that could unlock new areas for Rust, right? So if we have, a, if it's really easy to connect to a database or, re, or really easy to write OpenGL code, hopefully easier than it is in other languages or at least as easy as say in Ruby or something, um, you know, that's a really powerful selling point. So that's, to me, that's the number one goal is, is enabling those applications, but it's a really tricky goal because you want to run, the way Rust compiler plugins work now is there's basically no abstraction barrier between the compiler and the plugin. So the, the plugin has pretty much access to anything in the compiler it wants, uh, which is great for writing plugins, but terrible for writing the compiler because any change we make breaks plugins, right? And anyone who's tried to live on the nightly ecosystem and make use of the plugins knows what I'm talking about. And that's, so we wanna set up a system where we can still run arbitrary Rust code, but it's relying on stable APIs. And that requires thinking hard about exactly what, uh, what we're willing to commit to what, in the sense that that won't foreclose future developments, right? Like if we, if we had declared plugin stable, we couldn't do Mirror, for example. Uh, so yeah, obviously we don't want that. Um, and I think, so I think that for end users, hopefully this won't be that important. The main thing is that the use cases of auto-deriving and auto-generation of code and so on will work. Uh, for the people who are developing the plugins, I expect what we're going to wind up doing is starting with a, a pretty minimal interface that maybe requires some helper libraries to really be usable, and we'll probably supply those libraries like in the Rustling nursery or something like that. And then that lets us iterate on these libraries and improve them, and when we feel pretty comfortable uh, with how they work, then we could maybe ship them even as part of the compiler so that they're available uh, to everyone, right? And everyone is working on a consistent version and so on. As part of that, we're also thinking about macros, sort of so-called macros 
which would be a, a better macro system that fixes some of the rough edges. Uh, and these things are kind of tied together because some of the rough edges have to do with the underlying models, specifically some details about how hygiene works. Hygiene being essentially the way that a macro can have a private name. So a name for a variable, say, that can't be named from the outside, and it will never conflict with the user's names and stuff like that. Um, and hygiene kind of has to work uniformly across plugins and macros, so we have to hammer those things out before we can support the plugin model I was talking about. Cool. Um, so one of the projects on your GitHub uh, that um, you've committed to is a project called Rayon, R-A-Y-O-N. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Rayon, what you see the purpose of it is, and uh, um, where it's going, and uh, if people should use it, and that type of stuff. Rayon is basically my effort to sketch out a good story for, for uh, drop-in parallelism in Rust. I, and I think what, what the borrow checker brings to you, when, well, one of the, let's say, felicitous accidents in, in Rust history is that the type system we wound up using, for, which was really targeting sequential errors like iterator invalidation and, and so on, things that happen just in sequential programs, use after free, it turned out that these are kind of a subspecies of, or subcategory of data races, in my, in my mind at least. Data races are basically iterator invalidation happening across two different threads, right? And, and there are more ways to have problems. It's a little more general, but it, it's kind of the same thing. So the same type system that was targeting sequential problems, programs turned out to be really well suited for guaranteeing data race freedom. Uh, unfortunately, in the standard library, you don't see a lot of support for that. Um, and I think there's some really good reasons for that. We've wound up over time targeting our standard library as a pretty relatively minimal uh, set of, of utilities, right? So kind of vectors and hash maps and, and the big pieces of the operating system, like starting threads and so on. But we haven't tried to do anything like include a user level and scheduler or work stealing setup and things like that, because those are systems that basically it's hard to get them right, right? So if we put them in the standard library, almost certainly someone's gonna come along and write a better one in user land. And then we'll have this, this one hanging out in the standard library that's not as good as the one that you really should be using, and it's just kind of unfortunate for everyone. So we tried to keep it kind of minimal to the, to the services that you really need and to push the rest out into the ecosystem. But what that meant is that I didn't feel like there was a library out there that was showing off how easy it is to parallelize uh, Rust code, at least in the way that I was, I was thinking of it. So Rayon is, is basically trying to address that. And the... Uh, it has two main parts. I think that the easiest and maybe neatest part is the parallel iterators idea, which is that you can essentially, if you, similar to how you would make an iterator chain in regular Rust, so you could say I want to vec.iter.filter.map.collect or whatever in order to iterate over a vector, test each element, apply some function to it, and then build up another vector. In Rayon, you can do the same thing, but change .iter to .pariter, and all that X stuff will occur in parallel, right? The maps will be broken up in parallel and so on. Um, and what's better is that because it's leveraging Rust's borrow checker and Rust type system, the, uh, if you've made a mistake and if that map happens to be, say, mutating shared state without a mutex or something like that, you, your code won't compile anymore, right? So you have that kind of safe 
that that productivity multiplier I was talking about earlier, where uh, you get to leverage the type system benefits to know that you can add parallelism without worrying about these low-level bizarre bugs cropping up. Right? Um, I think that the the scheduler uses techniques pioneered by Silk a long time back now, uh, but which have basically been the foundation for most user land thread systems in one way or another, just work stealing. Um, the idea is to kind of dynamically adapt to the number of cores and how busy they are in terms of how you chunk up the tasks that you want to farm out. Uh, probably there's, I'm well, 100% positive that there's a lot of room we could do to making, to improving Rayon's underlying scheduler and so on, though I did get to leverage a bunch of crates.io crates to do things like the work stealing deck, which is a central data structure, which was really awesome. So. Basically, instead of having to do all the work of hand-tuning this crucial data structure, I just grabbed something on crates.io that had already, someone had already done it, and dropped it in, in place. I, I had a naive one, I added this one. In about 30 seconds, the code was working, and that was you know, pretty cool. It went about 10x faster, I think. <laughs> uh, so it was, a good, it was a good 30 seconds in terms of improving Rayon's end user experience. So, so in that way, I feel like Rand's a good, it shows off the two, two, two great aspects that Rust brings to the table that other systems languages never had, right? A strong type system that lets you prevent errors and write these nice APIs, plus a good package manager that lets you leverage other people's work really easily, so. Very cool. What is the compiler team's role within the Rust community besides the, the obvious? And, um, and how have you found the, the team process to either help or hinder um, the Rust compiler? So the compiler team is slightly different than the other teams because we're really focused on the implementation artifacts and not so much on making decisions about uh, kind of what should or shouldn't happen, but just the best way to make it happen. It's kind of like the executive branch, in theory anyway, of the government or whatever, right? Um, and the what I've found, I mean, I've been really happy with the compiler team, actually. I think it's given, it's been a great way to get better and more lasting contact with all the members of the community who've been working on the compiler for so long. Because one of the great things about, I mean, about Rust-C itself is that we actually do have a really rich contributor base of people volunteering their time and their expertise and making it better, right? And the whole sub-team structure was really set up in order to to, to recognize those people and to make them formally part of the Rust organization. Uh, and I'm really excited that, that it's worked out that well. I think we're actually doing, we're, st we're, still, we're still working on, the, still kind of exploring that idea. So like, for example, next week even, we're going to do a development uh, sprint where the compiler team is, is getting together and we're gonna focus on trying to push Mir and push incremental compilation farther along. You know, maybe we can even get them working in some form. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that because I've never met most of these people face to face, right? So that's an opportunity to do that. Um, so I, it basically, it's just the, the compiler team primarily is, is a way to to um, both give recognition but also enable you know more regular meetings and and uh, more regular contact among all the people maintaining Rust C. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm curious about this last question. If you have. Uh anything to, to say about how we in the Rust community should be reaching out to these legacy communities. I mean, I'm not going to hide my bias. I've written databases before and 
as we enter the world of distributed databases, I'm terrified of the thought of trying to do these types of things in C or C++. But at the same time, it can be difficult to uh, express the value to traditional C or C++ database programmers unless we can kind of help create a very clear and unified description of why this might be valuable and really feature, you know, I've, I've found that Rust and C integration are great, um, but I'm, I'm curious what you think about how this interaction should go, any uh, lessons yeah. you might have learned from the community. And that that's, a really, that's a really interesting question. So I think it's something that we're on, I don't, I feel like I have more questions than answers here, right? Because I, I don't I think it's something that every community, first of all, is a little bit different. But I'm sure there will be a lot of commonalities nonetheless. But uh, what what is the most effective way to persuade people that Rust has something to offer them is definitely you know, something that we've been asking ourselves and, and working on finding the answer to. I think we have, in terms of the experiences that I've personally been involved with, it seems like the conversation has either been really easy, where people were basically excited about using Rust, or else, you know, the proof, the most persuasive thing in the end is is working code and showing that, you know, the overhead is not, whether it be the overhead of type annot system annotations or runtime, the overhead is really low, uh, you know, and that the Rust system is working really well and integrating very cleanly. Um, and, uh, and thus that people don't have a lot to fear from, from this, right? Um, I think we're, we're starting now, for example, to, to experiment around with uh, Rust integration into the Gecko code base. And I think it has a kind of similar, um, similar pattern in that there's a lot of pre-existing C and C++ code and there's a lot of questions about how, how well will the Rust code fit in and so on. And so far that's been going really quite well. Uh, so, and of course Mozilla is interested in seeing this happen, right? But um, I would like to, so I don't know the answer, but, um, but I'm really happy to hear that you're pushing on this effort and I hope that we can kind of get a better playbook as we go. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the right way to do it is it's it's a conversation. I have to admit the one thing that I have learned in spades from the IRC in Rust is is listening and compassion. Um, so that's been my approach so far. Uh, and uh, it's nice to know that, um, you know, there's some learnings that might come out of Mozilla that we might be able to uh, reflect out here. Um, well, that is, uh, I guess, a, a good note to end on. Um, Nico, uh, thank you so much for being on Rusty Radio.